she should be able to get in. Yeah, I think it brought up teams that it thinks that uh, we have only one sign. I'll, I'll keep texting with her, trying to get her to work it out. Don't let me interrupt. Chuck, if you no, no, if you don't, um, let me know again, and I'll see if I can get an email to her with the address. But the okay, simple, yeah. the simple. Yeah, off, sorry. Off her. She, she went to the website, was already, and she was listening to some uh, previous um, uh, sessions actually earlier this evening. So. Well, tell her to try Literature's Prophecy and go on the front page to that Join Now. And if it doesn't work, let me know. Um, actually, what I think I'll do, um, I try to get an address if I can get an email to her. Um, but let's start. Let's start. Sure. Um, sorry for that lengthy. <laughs> Hi, David. Hi, Kay. Good to see you. Bob and Karen, it's good to see you guys. Um, we've got a lot of ahead of us today, and um, so... Oh, oh, you know here, you know what's going on? What's I don't that? know. If, I've had an Edward Lutz at the top, so it may be just she's... Yeah. Is she on? I think I, she's yes. she yep. on. Yes. Oh, good. Yes. Good. Sorry. <laughs> Hi. Lori, do you know the guy to your, on, on my screen, do you know the guy to your right? Do you know that guy sitting looking too comfortable where he is? Oh, oh he's <laughs> on my screen. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Um, any, any, any prayer requests? Did you start it? Oh, any prayer requests today? I've got some serious uh, ones, but... Any you guys? Um, Kay, how's your daughter doing? Well, she finally, after two months of stay at the cancer hospital, she came home on last Friday. No, no, last Thursday. The next day, her 21-year-old son, who is staying home and going to school and working, tested positive for COVID. Gosh. So we are just really concerned. Yeah, God. yeah, 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 Christ. Yeah, because the doctor was so afraid to release her. Sure. Because sure. of the COVID, you know, being rampant outside in the outside oh. world. And she's just right into the... Uh, Could she stay with somebody else, Kay? Can she... I don't think so. God. And she's in, you know, California, and we are here. And also, doctor doesn't want her to be, I don't know. Exposed. Yeah, exposed. So we can't even, even if we went there, you know, we aren't allowed to see her. Probably yeah. have to do quarantine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's uh, pretty much like, you know, just doing a FaceTime. That's all we can do. God, God. God. This was just so, you know, we are so worried because her, she has no uh, resistance. Yeah. Oh, so vulnerable. Yep. 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 Okay, yeah. I'm I'm really sorry to hear that. Um, what's her name again? Denise. Denise. Anybody else? Prayers for friends of hers, Shelby and Martin, who just 
lost triplets. Oh, wow. Wow. Shelby and Martin. Gone. Gone. Um, I'm going to mute you all. Um, um, just to help with the sound. Chuck, your your window's highlighted as if you were going to speak. I don't know if you... Did you want to say something or is that a... To your camera or your frame is highlighted. I don't know what, if your mute is on or... If anybody wants to say anything, just unmute yourself and jump in, okay? Let's... Let's... Um, let's... I, just so you know, I got a I got a note from Heather, and she was really sorry she couldn't make it tonight. She's she and her family, everybody in her family is down with COVID. She, the kids, and she's saying it's a rough go. Um, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What to say? Um, the readings increasingly are threatening warning, Christ is um, telling us to take very seriously what he's asking us of, of us. He's, this morning in the reading, or yesterday in the reading, he was sending his disciples out and saying, take no sandals, take no backpack, take, you know. Um, what he's saying is, give up the world for the kingdom, go preach. And um, hard words. Um, he, although all along the disciples have been being prepared because he's saying give everything you have, give to the poor unless you pick up your cross, unless you fall to the ground I mean all of those images that we have to die it's really interesting you know, uh, Christ didn't before the cross, Christ he did nothing um, to make, to give us any sense that he was giving up the world, he ate the Jews accused him of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. He was eating with the, you know, the tax collectors. They accused John of being an ascetic, and they accused him of, accused him of drinking too much and eating too much. But in everything he did, you know, he, he, the, the giving up the world didn't prevent him from doing things. And I think the challenge for us is to live in our world and not let it take us over. To, because if, if we start living for other things at the expense of our faith or the call, then, um, then we're asking for difficulties. It's a tough call for all of us, particularly because our culture is so affluent, it's so generally wealthy. So I ask us um, a special grace for all of us to take seriously that call um, to not take for granted the things that we have to try to live as if we can do without them, to free ourselves from whatever prisons we lock ourselves in, so that we can take Christ um, to each other. Um, it's risky to do that. means problems often. Strengthen us, please, in our efforts to do that, trusting you always, knowing that you... Um, <laughs> We so often do things as if we're certain that we have the answers to everything and find out later we didn't. <laughs> Very often when we were most sure we, there was something we didn't see. So strengthen all of us in our faith to, to do the best we can, knowing always that there are things we don't see. You do. We don't. So strengthen our sight, strengthen our faith, give us courage, take away our fears, Help us to um, 
give ourselves to what you're asking. I ask a special blessing on um, several people today for Heather and her family. Um, let me preface this for a second. Amy, our oldest daughter, has been all over me for several weeks. <laughs> when she hears that I'm going to church without a mask, she, she's so respectful. I mean, she, she won't quarrel. She doesn't get offensive at all. She's just really good. But she expresses a grave concern for me and when she hears that I don't wear a mask to church. And I, I took a mask to church even though I didn't wear it all the time. I, you know, I, I, I've told Amy, I, I, I am heartfelt grateful for her response. But I always can't do those sorts of things. It's, um, but I'm taking them really seriously. It's a strange situation to be in. But, and one of the reasons she was so concerned is two of her friends lost fathers to COVID. Um, dear friends, these are close by. We just got the news from our son and a friend of his in Dallas that um, they lost their mother. So I can remember a year, a year and a half ago when we first got hit by COVID, we were talking about New Jersey and Boston and New York and, you know, some other areas, but not Dallas. And then it hit Dallas and then things let up and we thought we were free. And then suddenly a new wave hit. And the strange thing about this, and I remember a year ago, kids, the, 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 the impression was kids were immune. It was attacking older people. But more and more, kids are coming down with COVID. Um, and the point that I'm making is more and more, it's getting closer to home. It's not out there anymore. Um, people we know are, are losing people. They're not just getting infected, they're dying. The priest who came to give me um, anointing of the sick a month and a month and a half ago said that he'd had um, 10 funerals in 14 days. And he talked with the people at the hospital and they said a third of the people coming in with COVID were dying. So my prayer is that all of us take care. The fact that we do may not spare us. There are people who've been vaccinated who are dying. Um, God protect us. Christ, surround us with your protection, please. Um, and um, where we suffer losses, particularly um, those we love, let us not forget that um, you know that better than we do. To not lose our faith in you, to trust always, and maybe even more deeply when we do lose loved ones. I ask for a special grace on Heather and her family and the kids, keep them safe. Um, I ask for a special protection on Denise um, and, um, and her son. Um, um, surround him with your protection. Let a shield surround him. Protect Denise from him. Keep her safe, please. Hear our prayers. Um, and we just heard from our daughter that friends of hers, Shelby and Martin, lost triplets. Just gone. Um, so the world is under a, a terrible stress. Um, there may be a scourging in this something important for America and the West because we have given so much importance to wealth and comfort. Um, over and over and over again, plagues turn up and people who have taken things for granted um, suffer losses. Um, 
things don't happen without your permission, Lord. If there's a scourging going on because we have overreached ourselves in our love of comfort and wealth, um, let us take seriously the humbling that goes on with all of these deaths, all of these dyings. Um, let them all draw us closer to you, take more seriously um, our call from you. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to just a couple of things here before we start. We have not been reading lyrics, um, I think because my my coming back into class a few weeks ago was so tentative, you know, I wasn't sure how things would go. I still have up and down days. There are days when, <laughs> God, it's just, oh God, it's so strange. I mean, it, there are days when I, I'm not struggling the way I was two months ago, but I, there are times when I have to work at breathing, and it's, you know, such an ordinary thing, but um, anyway, the approach was so tentative, and I wasn't doing lyrics because we were just feeling our way along. I think what I'm going to do is pick up the lyrics again next week, and I'm going to um, choose lyrics that we've already done that are short and brief, but that speak to our faith, just to get that lyric back in our life, okay? And just to let you know, for those of you who have finished Hamlet, because we've been at it now for a while, and I'm assuming some of you have, I'm not sure, but... We're going to do King Lear after Hamlet, <clears throat> and let me let me uh, offer a note on that before we start. Um, Hamlet and King Lear <clears throat> are probably his two greatest tragedies. Lear is is the most painful tragedy that I have ever read. Um, nothing nothing an American has written, nothing in the modern world that I've ever written comes close to what happens in that play. The suffering is extraordinary. Um, like Hamlet, Shakespeare's taking an actual historical figure. There was a king named Lear who lived about eight centuries before Christ, if my memory serves. I have to check that, but I think it's about eight centuries. I'll, I'll, put, I'll put some notes online. Um, it's, so it's eight centuries before Christianity. Why did Shakespeare write one of his greatest plays on a non-Christian hero. Macbeth, Hamlet, and Othello are all Christian. They're all baptized. He's dealing with Christian tragedies, and they're different from pagan tragedies. We know this now. We've done Oedipus together, yeah? You all know Oedipus by heart, I'm sure. <laughs> if you remember Oedipus, Oedipus grew up aware that he was fated to do something. One day he would kill his father and sleep with his mother. He was under a destiny. That's one of the great problems of the ancient world. Um, I, th I think it's more subtle than that. I don't want to go into that now because we've already done it. Um, because it's a serious question. What would have happened if he'd not tried to escape his fate? What would have happened? It might have been a different outcome. We don't know. But that's a very different worldview from a Christian worldview because Christians don't believe that we're fated to do anything. We believe in our free will. If we end up in hell, it's because we chose it. If we end up in heaven, it's because we chose God. So Shakespeare's dealing with Christian heroes. The nature of those tragedies is very, very different from pagan tragedies. Something good is happening, even with all those people dying in every one of those tragedies. Lear, Hamlet, Beth, 
or Othello. He's read Boethius, and I believe he took him to heart. I, I think there's an argument going on about this, but I think, I think Shakespeare's Catholic. I have no question about it. There's not a question in my mind. And he's read Boethius, the Wheel of Fortune image turns up in his plays everywhere, constantly. He does in Lear a lot. You'll find it a lot. But it raises the question, why did he write um, a play going back eight centuries before Christ at this time? Okay, I'm going to, anybody want to venture an answer? I'm going to, should I give it away? Lori's shaking her head. That's enough of a reason for me not to do it, Lori. <laughs> when the kids do that, I stop. I say, no, wait, or read it yourself, or, you know. Um, well, well, Bob, uh, kind of in the same vein as uh, what we studied in uh, Homer's Iliad, uh, we see... Uh, a depiction of God at work uh, in the pagan world before the arrival of Christ, and in, in fact, completely outside the Judeo-Christian tradition. Right. And so I don't, I don't know how that plays into King Lear. Well, it actually does. I mean, I think it's a good point, Mike. Um, let me just offer this thought when you start, and I, I would encourage you all to start reading it. It's a really good play, really good. It's just, it's a painful, painful play. Beautiful, beautiful play. What happens to Lear is remarkable. Um, I think he's writing that play because he's writing, and he knows it, to an audience um, that's lost its faith, that is no longer Christian. That's on the threshold of the modern. We've been talking about this. Remember that line in um, All's Well That Ends Well? The age of miracles is past. We have entered a rationalistic age. It's one of the points I made in the background, the opening statements on Hamlet. We're in a very rationalistic world, and it's one in which um, faith has been undercut by the Reformation. You know, Hamlet goes up at Wint, or goes to Winton. We've talked about all that. He's writing Lear to um, an audience that has questioned it faith or lost it, that has turned to science and reason and philosophy. Um, so what, let me, I'm gonna, you can argue at this point when you read it, but so let me ask this question going in in case any of you start reading Lear in the next week. We, we will finish Hamlet for sure next week and maybe start Lear. Um, if, if, if I'm right, and I may be wrong, if there's any truth to what I'm saying, what would a Christian, what a, an audience that is increasingly non-Christian, what would it learn from a play like Lear? I've told you that um, one of the poets I hope to do in this class, T.S. Eliot, The Four Quartets, I think is the, one of the most beautiful sets of poems that's ever been written. Eliot's writing for a non-Christian audience. I think I, I'm, I think I told you this when we were doing Ash Wednesday and, around Easter time. The, the, the intellectual audience loved Eliot for the first half of his life until he converted to Christianity. And after Ash Wednesday, which is a conversion poem, the intellectuals turned away from him. 
<clears throat> so Eliot was writing to an audience that was non-Christian. He knew that, and it and it shows in his writing. Um, how do you, how how do you deal with an audience with whom or an audience that does not share your faith? This goes directly to Hamlet. Hamlet's had a revelation. What can he do? That revelation virtually cuts him off from everybody. What do you do when you grow up in an age that's no longer Christian and doesn't share Christian beliefs? How do you approach it? I, I hope you know how big a... I mean, that's what we were speaking to earlier before everybody came online concerning education. Can we make a defense of our faith using reason? How do we do that? How do we go to a world? Because otherwise the world will not hear us. Do you believe in Christ? Take Christ as your savior? How well is that going to fly? Can we use reason? Can we use the natural order to strengthen what we're doing to answer our call? So Hamlet and Lear speak directly to, to this problem. Let me start there with just that. So those of you who finished Hamlet and want to go on, Lear is an extraordinary play too. Any questions about that? Remember, I, the, all of the additions for any Shakespeare we do, get the Signet or the, or the Folger um, because they're cheap and, and portable and the, the, the um, Folger is really, I, I think, really good. It's, it's so readable. It's easy to read. It's just it's a good little pocket back. It's small. Okay, no, no comments on that? Something's wrong. Those are, those are crucial issues for all of us, hot issues. I'm sorry, I was, I was muted and talking to myself, Bob, but that's probably better. <laughs> now, I really like what you said earlier, that um, as Christians, it's very easy to talk to one another, but you really have to train yourself to speak in a way that's appealing to people who don't share your faith or you're not persuasive, they can dismiss you. Yep, instantly. yep. And you should... And it's not that big a task because if what you believe is true, it will find support and reason. Why? Well, I happen to believe it is a huge task because I mean I spent my life doing it. and I still think it's hard. You know how do you make it? How do you use reason in a word? Particularly, well, here let me make it. Let me because I think you're right in a lot of. How do you use reason? I'm going to put it that you may disagree, Chuck. But how do you use reason in a world in which reason is virtually gone mad? Oh, well, that's another problem. I mean, we have to, we have to at least you agree on the, on the utility of reason. How do you, you talk with talk. Pe people? Think because they're using reason, they're rational. All you have to do is listen to the news today to hear how rational people are and what they do with reason. So I, I just think the task. I just think the task is so great, so hard. We've got to learn to use reason. We've got to remember. And by the way, one of Christ's important parables, the the parable of the unjust steward. How did he put it? The, the children who, you know, the unjust steward, it will be more successful be, because the children of light. Children of the world are. You know the parable I was talking about. He's, he's complimenting the, the, the unjust steward because of the way he uses the other people. And he's saying that's more effective than the children of light because the children of light often miss things. Children of the world are wiser than the children. Yeah, children of the world are wiser than the children. Anyway, I just think it's it's not an easy task for us. We've we've got 
we, we have to be in the world without giving into it and learn to work with what's given to us better than we do. At least I think that's one of our great struggles in our age. Okay. Any any other comments? Connie, do you have something? I was just saying, I was going to say uh, the cancel culture, which is so ridiculous. I mean, you can't say anything. anything. I mean, you can't say anything, anything without them immediately getting rid of you or yep. you've lost your job or, yeah, it's it's really ridiculous. They're just going to have to cancel me, though. Because I was going to say, <laughs> if you say anything, Connie, no matter what your race, no matter what your color, no matter what your nationality, you're a white supremacist. That's exactly right. It does. Or a man. Or a man. Or a man, yeah. Yeah. There's something really scary that I don't think is appreciated enough about this whole cancel culture thing because if people don't have an outlet to resolve the differences by persuasion, the only thing left of them is violence. Yeah, yep. It's a pure exercise of power. True. And what about mercy? I mean, seriously, let them, let them, how about showing them some mercy? <laughs> I myself would like to see a better spirit of justice because I don't even think we're close to justice anymore. Connie, before I start, I've just got to make this quick. I don't see anybody in the world canceling you. To so. Oh, well. <laughs> let's start. Maybe. Let's start. Let's start. I don't see, well, let's start. Let's see. Okay, a couple of. A couple of broad comments before we start. I've got Ophelia on my mind and Gertrude because of our last couple of meetings. And I'm really sorry Heather's here because I know, I know these things are close to her heart. Um, but I want to remind everybody, as we go through the play, I'm hoping, and I, I hope tonight, everybody will experience the same thing. There is a, a great complexity to the play Hamlet. A lot is going on. Just a lot. And um, it's, it seems to me one of the truths that we're meant to take away from the play, certainly if you keep Boethius in mind, and Shakespeare lived him. I mean, he, he was an informing principle. He helped him to see a lot. I don't think he could have written the poetry that he has without Boethius. Um, it, it leaves us with a problem, it, it, but it teaches us something, too. Um, how many of us... Oh, here, so when we read the play Hamlet we become aware of this great complexity. We can look at Ophelia in terms of it, or Hamlet, or Polonius, or Claudius, or Rosencrantz, or Gilded, anybody. But it seems to me what we learn is, if you take any of those scenes, um, and you focus too much on them, you miss a lot. It's a reminder for us how provincial we can become in our lives that sometimes we get so self-centered, so provincial, so narrowly focused on our own lives that we don't work hard enough at seeing what's going on in our lives in light of a larger whole. Now Hamlet in the play sees more than anybody, I believe, far more than anybody. But we know that even Hamlet misses a lot, right? Remember, he, he, he turned away from Claudius at prayer because he thought Claudius was praying. He wanted to kill him. He kills Polonius thinking it's Claudius. He's, he's a brilliant young man. He's really brilliant. He sees around people. He sees around Gildensturve and Rosenkrantz. He sees around Ophelia. He's really 
outraged that she betrays him the way she does, that she allows herself to be used. But there's a lot he doesn't see. Um, so one of the things that's important for us to see when we're reading these plays is the reminder that they give us that you can take any scene, but it's important to see it in light of the whole. Um, take that whole away and there's, you just won't see what's going on. Okay. That's one of the great gifts, I think, of the works that we've been reading, to learn to see that there's more going on. And after Boethius, if it wasn't before, we learned to see God is at work, God is at work doing things, and it's important not to forget that, if that's our belief. Okay. Um, some of the important scenes or events in the play... Um, some of the important scenes or events in the play... I just a quick review. I want to I want to pick everybody up because we miss for a week. The the ghost's revelation sets everything in motion because it's his revelation that makes Hamlet aware of something that nobody else in the play is aware of, and that is that Claudius the king killed his brother and married his wife. He took the throne um, treacherously. Okay, so the ghost's revelation, Claudius' state of the union. Remember we saw in the way that he uses words, he draws people to himself. He manipulates them. Um, we, we see the implications of that unfold over and over and over again. Um, he sends spies after his... Well, no, that's Polonius. He sends Polonius um, to spy on Hamlet. Polonius sends his son, Laertes, or a man to spy on his son, um, he asks um, Ophelia um, to use Hamlet so they can watch him. So Claudius uses Polonius, and Polonius uses the members of his own family for the interests of state. So increasingly we get an image in very complicated ways of how what the state does has an impact on everybody involved. Um, um, Claudius gets friends, Hamlet's friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, to spy on him. So there's nobody in the play, virtually, who isn't, in some ways, serving the ends of the state. It's a totalitarian state. Claudius took power. He's a Machiavellian liver, um, um, leader. Um, and we've talked about the effects of that on women. In the, in the, I think in our last meeting, I, I think I suggested that there's a weakness to the women. Both of them are, are not strong. I'd like to modify that tonight. I mean, I'd like, or at least to qualify it tonight. I don't think they are particularly strong, but I also think um, that that's not Shakespeare's critique. What he shows is that women are particularly vulnerable, or one way of looking at the, at the feminine problem here, is that women are particularly vulnerable in a state like this. So I want to look more closely at that today um, in what we do. So those are some of the opening concerns. After the revelation, Hamlet has a choice. He can act on the basis of what he saw, except he knows that the ghost may be evil and tempting him. He has to tempt and he knows that if he were to act on the revelation, people would think he's mad. Is that clear? These things have to be absolutely clear for me to go on. 
The ghost may be an evil spirit. He, as, as a Catholic, he knows that. So he can't take his word. And he also knows that if he kills Claudius and says, the ghost of my father told me so, everybody would, he'd be put in jail. Because he would be committing an act of regicide. Now let me go back to that because that's one of the most important issues of the play and we'll see it more and more as, as the play unfolds. The difference between killing Polonius and killing Claudius is major, or, or Hamlet, Old Hamlet. Old Hamlet was a king. To strike at a king was to strike at everybody. Shakespeare knew that in his bones. To kill the President of the United States is to strike at the United States because he's supposed to be the embodiment of everybody. So an act of regicide is graver than any other kind of murder because the whole state is embodied in that king. Okay? So um, if Hamlet were to kill Claudius, he would be committing a heinous act. So is that clear? I mean, he has a choice. He can't do anything without doing something to prove the ghost, the truthfulness of the ghost's word. He puts on the mousetrap play, right? Once he sees the reactions of Claudius, um, he has evidence now that what the ghost said is true. So now he faces other choices. If, if, the, if what the ghost said is true and the mousetrap play seems to confirm it, what is he supposed to do? How is he supposed to act? Now let me just go to some, just to get the text back in everybody's mind. Um, he's aware that Polonius is um, a lackey, that he's doing Claudius's will. He's aware that, Rose, um, um, that Ophelia is being used by her father. She's the woman he loves, and she's letting herself be used. And he's aware, he's aware that his friends are um, spying on him. So when they first meet in Act 2, this is Act 2, Scene 2, about line 290, he offers this view of the world. And I think it's important for us to remember, because of what he's seen, his view of the world has got to darken. Right? Um, I think if we had lived as Americans 50 years ago, 75 years ago, our view of America would not be as dark as it is today. Some of you may not agree with that, but I'd say we're facing a much darker world than our great-great-grandparents faced. Um, something's happening in America, and I'm going to say that it's a lot like Denmark. You know, I asked that question, how are the two alike? But, but Hamlet's view is darkening. He's learned that his uncle killed his brother, and that his uncle is the ruler of the country, and, he, and he's a subject. Even though he was heir to the crown, he's a subject. When he meets his friends, he gives you this, this view in Act 2, Scene 2, about line 290. I will tell you why you're here, he says, so shall my anticipation prevent your discovery and your secrecy to the king and queen molt no far. You don't have to cover anything up, I know. He's absolutely upfront. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth. Remember, the other thing that has so deeply saddened him is his mother married shortly after his father died. He's got to feel a betrayal on his mother's part for having married so soon because he loved his father. He thought of his father as a noble man. <clears throat> I have of late lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises, 
Indeed, it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why, it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. What a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. We know human beings who are exemplary in what they do. I mean, they're so, far, they're so much better than other human beings that they strike us that way. Um, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, nor woman neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so. And remember, everywhere he looks, he's seeing something corruption going on, some corruption. In everybody, the king, the queen, his friends, Ophelia, Polonius. Um, what line are you? I was Act 2, Scene 2, 290, roughly. The, 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 they're it. off by 20. Yeah. Um, I want to just quickly... Um, point to two other qualities that show the character of this regime. Because of its rationalistic nature and its moving away from God, people make claims for themselves that are greater than they would if they lived under a God. They'd be humbler. Um, Polonius has already made clear that he will do whatever Claudius asks him. The state is his end. He, makes, he uses that word even um, and he says in Act 2, Scene 2, about line 150, when the, when the king asks him to spy on Hamlet, take this from this, if this be otherwise, if circumstance lead me, I will find where truth is hid, though it were hid indeed within its center. He believes he can get to the center of a soul. Freud believed that. Polonius, in some sense, is a proto-Freudian. The assumption of psychoanalysis today is is that um, with our analytical powers, we can penetrate the very depths of the soul, and once we get to them, we can correct them. A Christian would say, there's no way. The depths involve Satan, they involve an evil that's beyond our powers, and they also involve graces beyond the evils that we can do. Is that clear? So there are mysteries at the center of the soul for a Christian that don't exist for a rationalist. And we're already seeing examples of that kind of rationalism here. So Hamlet, in so many ways, is just reminded. It's right on the threshold of modernity. This is where things begin um, that we're feeling the effects of today. Remember when he, when he um, I wrote those lines last week, when um, after the play, when the, his friends come to get him, and ask him to go to his mother's. Um, he's he's more upset now because he's he's proven the, the the truthfulness of the ghost. He knows what they're up to, and he says, "This is Act Three, Scene Two, around line three twenty. <coughs> Sorry." <coughs> Rosencrantz says his mother wants to see him. Hamlet says, 
we shall obey where she ten times our mother. Have you any further trade with us? My Lord, you once did love us. And do still by these picklers and stealers. Good, my Lord, what's your cause of distemper? You do surly bar the door upon your own liberty if you deny your griefs to your friend. <clears throat> Sir, I lack the advancement. Now, we have to appreciate this. He's seen what they don't. They don't know that Claudius is a murderer. But at the same time, they're willing to be lackeys. They're willing to do what the king does, even if it means betraying their friend, despite him. That's when Hamlet picks up the recorder from one of the players and says, play this. Gildenser says, I cannot. Hamlet says, play it, I do beseech you. Gildenser says, I can't. Hamlet says, it, this is line 343, it's as easy as lying. God, if, if, if you're paying attention, you can see how well Hamlet sees beyond what other people, because he's making a comparison with lying, because in some sense they are, even though they don't see it fully that way. Um, it's easy as lying. Govern these vantages with your fingers and thumb. Give it breath with your mouth, and it will discourse most eloquent movie. Look, music, look you, these are the stops, but these I cannot. I command to any, I cannot, but these cannot I command to any utterance of harmony. I have not the skill. Why, look you now, how unworthy a thing you make of me. You would play upon me. You would seem to know my stops. You would pluck out the heart of my mystery. You would sound me from my lowest note to the top of my compass, and there is much music, excellent voice, in this little organ. It cannot you make it speak God's blood. Do you think I'm easier to be played on than a pipe? Call me what instrument you will, though you can fret me, you cannot play upon me. Hamlet's a man of honor. It's absolutely crucial to see this. He's angry at these friends because they're using him as a thing. And the defense he's making is, a human being is far greater than this. They have no sense of mystery, no, no sense of honor, no sense of love. Those are things they've lost. So, um, let me, a couple more things. When Hamlet is contemplating what to do, um, This is before the play and before he gets the evidence. Remember in Act 3, Scene 1, he has that meditation on suicide. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't have the evidence yet. About line 50, to be or not to be, that's the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or take arms against the sea of troubles. He's a man overburdened. He's, he's facing impossible things that people are almost unimaginable. And um, he doesn't know what to do with them. One of the options is to escape life because the burdens are too great. Um, Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Ah, there's the rub. Because what happens if there's an afterlife and a dream after because if we take our lives when we shouldn't, that dream could be full of nightmares, horrors. Who would fardels bear to grunt and swear under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country, from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have, 
and to fly to others that we know not of. The fact that we have an afterlife makes us pause. Um, it may be better to bear our sufferings than to take our lives, because if we do, things could go worse afterwards. <clears throat> thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sickled over with a pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pitch and moment. With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. This is why so many critics say he's um, a procrastinator. He's not a procrastinator. Soft you now, fair queen nymph. So this is one of the earliest scenes in which we see him berating himself for not acting. Now hold on to that. The other comes when he sees the... the remember when he watches the player who can cry when he rehearses the passage from Aeneas and he says, here's a man who feels the wrong of something great enough to cry from it. And he's berating himself. He says, I don't even cry. So those are two instances when he berates. I want to bring a third because I want to try to tile this together. In Act 4, Scene 4, um, Hamlet's present when Fortinbras is taking his armies to war. <clears throat> this is Act 4, Scene 4 in the opening. And Hamlet says, um, what's he doing? Who is this? And the captain says, it's Fortinbras. Um... Truly to speak with no addition, we go to gain a little patch of ground that hath in it no profit but the name to pay five ducats. Five, I would not farm it, nor will it yield a Norway or the pole a ranked rate should it be sold in fee. Here's a captain obeying, his, going to war, he's going to risk his life, but he goes knowing that it's for nothing. The what Fortinbras is doing is stupid. Yeah? Here's Hamlet's response. about line 30 and following. What is a man, if his chief good and market of his time be but to sleep and feed, a beast no more? Go down a few lines. Now whether it be bestial oblivion or some craven scruple of thinking too precisely on the event, a thought which quartered hath but one part wisdom and ever three parts coward, I do not know why yet I live to say this thing's to do. He's got a quest and he hasn't done it. He knows at this point he's being sent to England. He didn't kill Claudius, he killed Polonius. He has not fulfilled his father's quest. So all he's doing is berating himself. Rightly to be great is not to stir without great argument, but greatly to find quarrel in a straw when honor's at stake. How stand I then? Fordenbras will go fight for a patch of land. He will risk himself and his men. How stand I then that have a father killed, a mother stained, excitements of my reason and my blood, and let all sleep, while to my shame I see the imminent death of twenty thousand men, that for a fantasy and trick of fame go to their graves like beds, fight for a plot whereon the numbers cannot try the cause, which is not tomb enough and continent to hide the slain. There's not enough land to bury the dead, because human beings are worth so much more. Well, from this time forth, my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth. Now, let me stop for a moment. <clears throat> um, compare Hamlet with Fortinbras for a second. What if he were to act on the basis of what he sees from Fortinbras 
Remember, old Hamlet belongs to that old honor code of men. It goes back to Achilles and some of the heroes you've been looking at. And he's been asked to kill the king. As a matter of fact, when he goes into his mother's chamber and he hears the noise, he stabs the curtain thinking it's Claudius. He mistakenly kills Polonius. But Characterize Hamlet if he had, if he killed the king in the spirit of Fortinbras, and maybe even in the spirit of his father. Would he be the same as Fortinbras? Different? What's Hamlet? There have been three times now when Hamlet berates himself. When he says, what kind of a, what kind of a son am I? By the way, let me put this in context just to, so you see how important this is. Every one of the epic heroes we read from the ancient world faced a moment like this. Every single one of them. At the end, when Achilles returned to the war, he was going to be drowned in the river Xanthos, remember? And he pleaded to the gods not to let him die because he didn't want to die in water. We talked about that. It would be humiliating. By the way, think about the way this points towards baptism. He did not want to die in water. He wanted to die a noble death in battle. Achilles, Odysseus is at sea. When his wrath is crashed, exactly the same words. He appeals to the gods, I do not want to die at sea. Telemachus, searching for his father, is at sea and says the same thing at, when, at a point when he's at risk. He does not want to die a dishonorable death. Now, it said that against baptism, but here's Hamlet berating himself, saying, all these other men are acting and I'm not. Do we... Is he failing here? Um, is he no different from Fortinbras? Would he be the same if he killed Claudius here? How do we look at Hamlet here? He considers himself a failure at this point. Mm -hmm. He has a revelation in Act 5 that will make him at peace with what he has to do. Yeah. But my question is, if... Um, what would happen if he, at this point, simply took it on himself to not, to not go to England, let's say, to kill the king? How would we look at him? Because we've got two people with which to compare him, with whom to compare him, his father, Fortinbras. At the end, we're going to have one more, Laertes, because he's going to go into a duel with him. But let, let's stay, I want to hold off the end today. I'm asking what, um, he sees himself as a failure. How do we see him? It, what, what, how would we view him if he, at this point, just took on himself to go back to the castle and kill the, oh, from this time forth, my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth. He would be concerned about his, his own honor in doing this act rather than some other um, direction or inspiration or, or a sense of justice even. In that way, he's very much like Fortinbras, although his, the charge laid on him, I, I would argue, is a little weightier than what Fortinbras was laboring under. Yeah. Anybody else? Mike? Michael? Well, he's 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 gotten his confirmation from the mousetrap play 
and yet he didn't act immediately. I can't quite put my finger on that, but he wanted to he wanted to uh, face his mother first, which he did. And he didn't act immediately after that. And I'm I'm wondering, you know, was it was it within his power to do it? I mean, one doesn't just walk into the king's throne room and pull a sword and kill him. Um, and then he was sent to England. So, uh, to tell you the truth, I struggle with him after he gets back from England. Uh, yeah. More because at that point he knows the king has already put a murder warrant on on his head. Uh, but his his action would be in defense of his father's legacy and to restore justice rather than uh, Fortinbras' quest for a small patch of land of no value. Yeah, yeah. Symbolic value. Yeah. Keep, let's, I'll, I want to turn to a few. Keep in mind this while we're going forward. Hamlet's far more of an intellectual than Fortinbras. He is far more sensitive to matters than Fortinbras. He's also had a private revelation. He's carrying a burden Fortinbras has no clue about. It's hard to see him even being as sensitive to something like that. Hamlet's an extremely well-educated, sensitive young man. He's intellectual. He's sensitive. He, he, he carries the soul of a poet. He quotes poems. He's ready to fight. Um, after the mousetrap scene, it seems to me, at least my understanding of it, is he is ready to kill. He's going by the king. I, my, I mean, the way the scene is presented, I think we're supposed to believe that if the king had not been at prayer, Hamlet yeah. would have killed him, because that's what he says. Um, he's ready to kill him, and he says, this is a fine way to avenge my father. That is, he's convinced now, so he's ready to kill him. He says, this is a fine way to avenge my father. This is higher and pay. I'm sending him to heaven. So he doesn't do it, but for the wrong reasons. And as I suggested last time, I think their reasons are damnable for Hamlet. This is a dangerous moment for him. But he's ready. he is ready to kill him. And we, if we have any doubts about that, we see it in the next scene when he's in his mother's room because he kills Polonius. He thinks it's the king. So I, I think we're supposed to assume that after the mousetrap, he, he is determined. But he didn't. And by mistake, he killed Polonius. And in doing that, he's unhinged the state. And certainly the king. Claudius becomes a... Particularly after... We're going to look at this now. We're, that's where we're going. The mother... Be, um, he confronts the mother and she becomes unhinged when he confronts her with what he's saying or all these wrongs. Um, so at this point, I think we can say that Hamlet is determined to kill the king. He, he's committed himself to doing it. He had an opportunity to do it but didn't because he thought it wouldn't serve justice. He'd be sending the king to heaven, um, so he doesn't. Kills Polonius in the next scene. This unhinges everybody. In the next, in Act Four, we're going to see Laertes is returning um, because he's learned his father's been killed, and Ophelia is overcome with grief and is on a point of madness. She's beginning to speak like Hamlet, except in her case, it's not feigned; it's not pretended. Emotionally, she's she's overwrought. Um, so I want to go there. But at this point, I just I, I just want to see if we can hold on to some of the complexity of this. 
Hamlet has this revelation. The king is a Machiavellian figure. He's manipulating everybody. There's nobody Hamlet can turn to, to, to trust. He is absolutely isolated. And the effects of everything that's gone on are getting worse and worse and worse. In one way, what Shakespeare's showing is this. When you kill a king, when you kill the leader of a country, you strike at the heart of that country. When an illicit ruler takes over, because what he did in taking hold of that throne was illicit, he's setting in motion all of these other things. Laertes is going to say in the scene that we're about to look at that he doesn't know that God hasn't turned his back on Denmark because there's, there's rottenness everywhere. Things are getting worse and worse. And we know that happens to countries. It happened to Germany and the second. I mean, we, historically, we can go back. We can watch countries slip into decay and decline. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, I want to go to Act 4 just very quickly and move, move through it. Act 4, Scene 1 in the opening, um, Claudius is taking with, talking with Gertrude and he says, Oh, heavy deed, it had been so with us. Had we been there, his liberty is full of threats to all. He realizes now, particularly after what Gertrude tells him, that his life is in danger. Um, she spoke about, remember, Hamlet just... Um, um, Ray Coles over her, telling her how vicious and evil she was because of what she did with the king. She obviously brings some of this to um, Claudius, and he realizes that in killing Polonius, Hamlet was actually intending to kill him. So the threat is more immediate to him now. He's got to get him out of the way. But so much was our love, we would not understand what was most fit, but like the owner of a foul disease, to keep it from divulging, let it feed even on the pith of life. Where is he gone? He tried to restrain himself. He's presenting himself as if he did it out of love. <laughs> when there's nothing, he does motivated by love. Um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern come, and um, Claudius asks them to, to, to find the body, Polonius, and they go to Hamlet, and Hamlet in Act 4, Scene 2, again, once again, makes all these statements that seem nonsense, but that show that he's aware of things that his two friends are not. In Act 4, Scene 2, um, he, he uses the word sponge in one of his descriptions, and Rosencrantz says, Take me for a sponge, my lord? I, sir, that soaks up the king's continence, his rewards, his authorities, but such offenses do the king best service in the end. He keeps them like an ape in the corner of his jaw, first mouth to be last swallowed. When he needs what you have gleaned, it is but sequence in you and sponge, and you shall be dry again. That is, he's using you as long as you're useful. When you're not, he'll dispose of you. Is there any other conclusion to make of a Machiavellian king? If he's going to use you, once you're in the way or... or once you become an issue, he will have no scruples about getting rid of you. I mean, that's his attitude from the beginning. Hamlet sees that. His friends do not. Um, Act 4, Scene 3. Um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern come back, and Hamlet does too. 
And the king says, where's Polonius? This is about line 20. At supper. <laughs> Remember, the, the image used of the king in the passage I just read is the king eats people. If you remember from Dante, remember what is Satan doing at the bottom of hell? Mm -hmm. Eating Brutus, Cassius, and uh, Judas, remember? And we talked about it then. Why is that such an appropriate image? Because in Christianity, it's the opposite of Christ feeding people, that he's giving his life away. One of the images of a servant is giving himself as bread for others. One of the images of tyrants is eating people. We saw that with the suitors, by the way. Remember, the suitors were eating up house and home. And so Hamlet, when the king says, where's Polonius? Hamlet says, at supper. <laughs> How bright is this young kid? God, scary. Scary. What doesn't he see? Um, at supper, where? Not where he eats, but where's, where is eaten? A certain convocation of politic worms are eaten at him. Your worm is your only emperor for diet. We fat all creatures else to fat us. We prepare them or they eat us, and we fat ourselves for maggots. We get fat so that when we die in our grave, maggots can eat us. Your fat king and your lean beggar is but variable service, two dishes, but to one table. That's the end. He, they can make no sense of it. But two things I want to point out here, because he's, he's looking at Claudius as feeding on people, and people carrying on activities in a way that complements that, that they're feeding him, fattening him, um, but I want to look at this, this, the language, not where he eats, but where, where it is eaten. A certain convocation of politic worms are even at him. The diet of worms was called in 1513. I think it was, that was the date. Yeah. Do you know what, Mike? Or Chuck, was that you? Who, sorry, who was that? Yeah, that's right. Can you, can you flesh that? Do you know why it's important here? He, do you think he's making reference to it there, or is it just, I don't... Well, it's the Diet of Worms, that's also the, um, the convocation at which Luther um, ah, right. was present. So here, once again, is an allusion to Luther. And here's what's interesting. Shakespeare does not point his finger at Luther. He does not mention the name, although we know he's gone to Wittenberg. What he's doing instead, instead of pointing a finger, is he's showing all of these implications as if these are the things that can only invariably come about as a result of, of this new theology, that it's going to lead to these kinds of problems. Was that clear? He doesn't point a finger at Luther, but he does, I mean, there's this allusion, certain convocation of politic worms, the Diet of Worms, I think, was um, it was called by the emperor in, I think it was 1513. Um, I missed that. So here's once again another illusion, but the interesting thing is he, he's not making irrational arguments. He's saying, if this, then this, then this, then this. What he's doing as a dram dramatist is showing all these things and he's putting it in a language that suggests an emperor feeding on a people or kings feeding on a people. And here's an illusion of a religious leader 
who's created a situation that is contributing, making these problems. Let's go back a second. Would any of this have taken place if the ghost had not appeared to Hamlet and he had not had a private revelation? No. The play falls apart. That's its origins. Um, the king lets Hamlet know that he has to send him away because things are going to get worse and worse, and we know that because um, Laertes is, when Laertes learns that his father's been killed, he comes back at the head of a revolution threatening the king. The king has to do everything he can to calm Laertes down and get him to join him. Um, so so we're, we're watching a state become unraveled because of certain acts that were taken that, that eat at the foundations of a state. Um, act 4, scene 5, this is just after the scene in which Hamlet sees what Fortinbras is doing and berates himself. Act 4, scene 5, um, um, the queen wants to speak with Ophelia, and a gentleman comes to her and says she should be pities because something's going on with her. <coughs> huh? The queen does not want to speak with her. She does. She's oh, she says it, yeah. The queen says, what would she have? The gentleman says, she speaks much of her father, says she bears, there's tricks in the, now follow this. Because the supposition we're to have at this point is she's going mad. The supposition we have with respect to Hamlet, if we stand with all the people in the play, is that he's going mad, that he's losing it, that he's speaking nonsense, and he's doing all these strange things. So we've got Hamlet who appears to be mad, and Ophelia who appears to be mad, and yet we see that almost everything Hamlet says makes sense. He's indirectly speaking truths to people. They're not wise enough to see them, and he's being oblique. He's going at things indirectly. The man says, she speaks much of her father, says she hears there's tricks in the world, and hems and beats her heart, spurns enviously at straws, speaks things in doubt that carry but half sense. Her speech is nothing, yet the unshaped use of it doth move the hearers to collection. They aim at it and botch the words up fit to their own thoughts. That is, they try to explain things by making them fit their assumptions, which is what people do. When somebody's doing something, people analyze it, and they don't see that they're very often analyze it in terms that reflect more about themselves than what's really there. Botch the words up to fit to their own thoughts, which as her winks and nods and gestures yield them, indeed would make one think there might be thought, though nothing more yet much unhappily. Ratio to her good she were spoken with, for she may... Strew dangers, conjectures, and ill-breeding minds. Queen, let her come in. Now, I want to read just some of these lines, and I'm, I want to ask this. We've already seen that everything that's going on is having a negative effect to the women. In a, in a, it, it's had a negative effect on everybody. Everybody, there's nobody who hasn't been affected ne negatively, for sure. Friends are betraying friends. A father's killed. 
Um, here a daughter is distraught um, and she seems mad. <clears throat> um, so Ophelia comes in seemingly distracted. Ophelia, where's the beauteous majesty of Denmark? Where's it gone? Where's the beauty? So, he, so follow her words. How mad is she? Is there a reason in her madness? Is there a wisdom in what she's saying? Can we pick it out? What do we see? Where's the beauteous majesty of Denmark? She says, where's it gone? How now, Ophelia? And she sings, how should I your true love know from another one? By his cockle hat and staff and his sandal shoon. The queen thinks, alas, um, she thinks she's losing it. Ophelia goes on. Um, queen says, what are you saying? Ophelia, say you nay pray you mark as listen to me. He is dead and gone, lady, he is dead and gone. At his head a grass-green turf, at his heels a stone, ho, ho. Nay, but Ophelia, pray you mark. No, no, listen. White his shroud as the mountain snow, the king comes in. Alas, look here. The queen's watching Ophelia, saddened at what she sees, emotionally overcome herself. Alas, look here, Lord. Ophelia sings again. Larded all with sweet flowers, which bewept to the grave, did not go with true love showers. How do you do, pretty lady? Well, well, this is to the king. Well, God dilled you. That is, God gave you back what you deserve. Um, they say the owl was a baker's daughter. Lord, we know what we are, but know not what we may be. God be at your table. That may be an allusion to a ballad that had to do with Christ's um, involving a baker and a, and a daughter. King, conceit upon her face. Ophelia, pray let's have no words of this, but when they ask you what it means, say you this. Tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day, all in the morning, but time, and I am made at your window to be your valentine. Then up he rose and donned his clothes and dupped the chamber door. Let in the maid that out a maid never departed more. That is, she came in and they had sex. And pretty Ophelia, the king says, indeed, law, without an oath, I'll make an end on it. By G's, that is, by Christ, by Jesus, and by Saint Charity, alack, and fie for shame, young men will do it if they come to it. By cock, that's a play on on the sexual. They are to blame, quoth she, before you tumbled me, you promised me to wed. He answers, so would I have done by under sun, and thou hadst not come to my bed. They, um, this is the way she leaves. When she, um, she leaves, she says, my brother shall know of it, that the father's gone, and so I thank you for your good counsel. Come, my coach, good night, ladies, good night, sweet ladies, good night, good night. She leaves, and... Um, the king and um, king grieve more over what they've just seen. It's at this point that Laertes comes in, um, leading a revolution, and threatens the king. The king manages to persuade him out of it. But let me stop here just for a second on Ophelia. Well, actually, let me complete it. Laertes and the king um, get together, and then Ophelia comes in, and this is the first time we see brother and sister together. This is about line 170 or so. She comes in singing. 
They bore him barefaced on the beep, the bier, hey non, nani, nani, hey non, nani, and in his grave rained many a tear. Um, Laertes says, Hath thou thy wits and didst persuade revenge? It could not move. Th he comes home already to avenge his father. He's ready to kill Hamlet. Um, well, everybody implicated in it. And when he sees her, he's only enraged the more. He wants vengeance for the loss of his father. Um, she goes on singing, For Bonnie Sweet Robin, in all my, in all my joy, Laertes, thought and affliction, passion held itself, she turns to favor and to prettiness. It's like she's so delicate in her helplessness, Ophelia. And will it not come again, and will it not come again? Go to thy deathbed, he never will come again. His beard was as white as snow, all flaxen was his pole. He's gone, he's gone, and we cast away a moan. God, a mercy on his soul, and of all Christian souls, I pray God, God by you all. And she leaves. She will take her life shortly after this. I, um, I want to look at one more scene before we leave tonight, but um, I'd like to just take a minute with this. What um, Characterize Ophelia. How do you characterize her at, at this point? Um, racked with grief. Say, Chuck, say it again. She's racked with grief. Yeah, yeah. Like Hamlet, is there a sense to her madness? Does is she is she just grieving over the loss of her father and losing Hamlet? Um, it it or does she see some things that mad people we think wouldn't? Is she just in darkness um, because she's lost her father and you know is bemoaning the loss of Hamlet or? Does she see anything in this madness? That's, I think that's my question. Is she aware of anything? Mike? I think perhaps she is, uh, she is regretful that she... Uh, that's done. Uh, it clearly, Hamlet was in love with her and wrote her, wrote her letters to that effect. And uh, she allowed her uh, her father, the, the king's toady, to uh, strong arm her into uh, setting a trap for Hamlet, or to lead him into uh, to be uh, spied on. So uh, I'm sure that's uh, that's part of her grief as well. And how do you see? A few of you here. Can't hear you. Can and can't hear you. Is your Yeah. Okay, there. I agree with I I agree with what he said and in going back to the question you posed several times about the women in this play. Mm -hmm. One of the focuses of this play is Hamlet is so isolated and I think it's a very masculine play in that there's a lot of 
what it is to be a man. And I think that if he had, when you you think usually the women who you would consider to be your most devoted, uh, important ties would be your mother and your lover or wife. And if, and if, daughter, they, had been, daughter. if they had been, been more worthy in this, he would have had a place to turn. And I think that, and on the other hand, it may have been a distraction. This wasn't really about romance. This was more about what he needed to do to step up and and be a man, and what that meant. And go back. Do you go? Do you have any thoughts mm-hmm. about Ophelia as a what? Um, it's. I mean, there's just a number of curious things here. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody looks at her as if she's distraught and f- mad. She's losing it completely. Is there and and every one of her responses is largely almost everyone is largely in song, yes, which is a harmony, it's a poetry. Um, it takes a memory to do that. Maybe it's an automatic. I mean, maybe psychologists. That's true. Say, you know, whatever you. Want. But it's in song. There's a beauty. There's a prettiness to it. And my question is: Is does her choice of songs show us at all that she seems to be seeing something? that nobody sees because all they see is that she's mad. Is there any reason in her madness? Is she, is she seeing anything? Um, how do we see her at this point? Is she just lost it so all of this is just incoherent babble? Or automatic yeah. rhymes the way some people do when they're going mad? They just go back to you know, automatic responses like a form of autism? Or is there something telling in them? How do we, how do we see... Lori, how do you see her? I want to get the women here. How do you see her? Um, Can we get some real wisdom in here and leave the men out of this? (laughs) I'm included. How do you see her? Is she seeing anything? I just hear her sad. Um, Trying to keep it together. Trying to keep the family together? I I don't know. Yeah. yeah, it really is sad. I mean, it's it to me. It's deeply, deeply sad. Yeah, Kay, sad. do you have any thoughts on Ophelia? Are you there? Yeah, I think her singing is sort of to uh, camouflage her deep-seated sadness and distraught. Does she see anything? Does she have any sense of what's going on around her, or is she just completely in the dark? I think she sees something, but she feels powerless. She what? Uh, she feels powerless, oh, powerless yeah. as to uh, what she could do. She feels <coughs> powerless to do anything. Yep, yep. Doc, how do you see her? I think... Um, Can you all hear Suzanne? Can you guys hear? Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Doc. I think she does see. <coughs> I think she's filled with grief for her father. I think she sees... Um, 
I don't think she I don't think she sees the full treachery. Um, but I think she she thinks there's something that's going on with Claudius. And um, that with her father gone and Claudius not to be trusted and Hamlet sent away, um, she feels totally vulnerable, totally isolated, just like yes. Hamlet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she says, you know, I, I will put it into without a vow. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to be married to Hamlet. I'm not going to take a vow to anybody else without a vow. Um, Can you read those words? I found them, but I don't know where they are now. Is it in the passages that we're reading? These section? I don't know. It's um, it's in her it's in her songs with what scene is Laertes or with? Um, it's four four or four five. Not not Laertes. Um, with with the queen and. It's four five. Four five. Mm -hmm. It's where all the songs are. Read the whole thing. That's what she says. We're, we're, I can't. I'm. Sixty-three. I've got it in fifty-five. The king says, "Pretty Ophelia." King says, "Pretty Ophelia." Read the whole thing, Doug. <coughs> the king says, "Pretty Ophelia," because she's been singing what they, they think is nonsense. Um. And she says, "Indeed, without an oath, I'll make an end on it." By just and by saint charity, alack and fie for shame, young men will do it if they come to it. By cock they are to blame, quoth she, before you tumbled me, you promised me to wed. What's on her mind is Hamlet. And and remember what, remember, God, it says, remember what her father's words were. Don't trust Hamlet, he's just a young guy out for sex, and he'll leave you. That's not true. And I think some something in her knew that, that, that Hamlet loved her, the poetry, all of, you know, that she felt it, but... Um, the, the, her father was undermining that. She's saying, before you tumbling, you promise, so what I had done by yonder son, and thou hadst not come to my bed. Um, so what's on her mind in those passages is Hamlet, their vows to each other, and the fact that they're gone. I mean, she's, it's over. So she's lost Hamlet. She's lost her father. Her father's dead. Um, so, the, I mean, the... I mean, one of the things we can say is that the women seem to be weak. At the same time, I think it's important to see that the conditions of these state of this state puts everybody at risk and makes everybody vulnerable. And it seems to me that's particularly true of the women. Um, Ophelia's cut off from everybody. She's absolutely isolated. All of her emotions, I mean, her loves have been cut off badly in ways that involve her father and in ways Hamlet, although she doesn't understand why. But I think I think Suzanne is right when she says, Will God dild you, that is God pay you back, they say the owl was a big there's some allusion to something going on there.
God be at your table. I, I don't. She doesn't see the way we see, but I think she has some sense that something's wrong. It involved Claudius and her father. She can't articulate it, but emotion. So she knows it through her emotions, but she has no clarity of mind to, to explain it. I think Kay's remark goes right to the point. I think one of the things the songs do for her is comfort her because they give her a stability, a rhythm, something in which to stand because emotionally there's nothing else. Um, but I think she does, she does sense something. If I can put it this way, she knows through her emotions in a way her mind hasn't fully grasped. And her emotions are overwrought. Now my reason for wanting to spend some time on this is that I just, there's such a complexity to this play. It's all set in motion by what Claudius did with his brother. To kill a king is to strike at the heart of everything. Something's rotten at the state of Denmark. And we're watching that rot play out. There's nobody who will escape it. The one person trying to answer it is Hamlet, and he's alone. I'm going to just take a look at one more um, act, or one more scene, just to move us forward. Next week, I'd like to finish Hamlet. We'll, we'll take Act 5 and try to resolve all these, <laughs> answer all these questions and see if we can't resolve some of the tensions that we've been talking about all along. Because they go directly to this question of um, mercy and justice. Um, in the, in the next scene we're going to see, I'll, I'll pick it up next week when we come, Laertes comes home, he wants to avenge his father's death. So we've got Hamlet wanting to avenge his father's death. Yeah. Laertes wants to avenge his father's death. What's the difference between those two men and the problems they're faced with in dealing with the question of justice? How do you bring justice to a wrong? particularly in a Christian universe, because we're asked to bring mercy. That's, quite, that's Shakespeare's overriding concern in, as a Christian. That's everyone. He, he brings a complexity to it most people don't see, but that's his overriding concern. How do you bring justice? Hamlet's got to bring justice to this right. If he does it in the Father's way, he's going to go back to an old honor, honor code. Laertes is facing a similar problem. His father's killed. He's got to avenge that death. What's the difference between those two men in exactly the same sort of problem? How are they different? So everything that happens towards the end is taking us to this tension in Christianity. How do you bring justice, particularly when it involves a matter of faith, when faith is above the political order, and still bring a mercy? What do you do? What do you do? Hamlet is doing everything he can. Who, who, who can call the king to account? Who in the kingdom will call Claudius? Nobody knows. What can Hamlet look to to bring an account to this king, to bring justice? The king's above everybody. What does he do? So Shakespeare's looking, taking a very fundamental problem that's a part of our daily lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our cities, our country. And he's taking it to a pitch. He's showing us 
the very hardest things about this call that we have as Christians to to fulfill justice, to remember Christ, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it, but with a love that you know that, that we don't deserve. So we've got those two men as we approach the end of the play. And next next week I want to look at the last scene and flesh that out. But at this point I just I'm hoping that we've 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 done some justice to the complexity of the play. That we're watching a whole people become unraveled. Um, it's a Christian people, something's happened to take it off its Christian course. And it's set in motion this violence that everybody is suffering from. Okay. Let me let me look at um, one last scene um, before we go. Hamlet comes to the graveyard at the end of the play um, and so does Laertes um, and Laertes is outraged that Hamlet would be there because he sees Hamlet holds Hamlet partly responsible for his father's death and for what's happened to his sister um, I, but I want to wait on that because we, we're I just want to be careful of time what I just want to look at for a moment is in the graveyard scene, Hamlet comes to the graveyard when this clown is preparing the um, the graveyard, the grave, the gravesite. And we haven't done enough work together, but if you've done anything with Shakespeare, you know that the clowns and fools are always wiser than they seem. That Shakespeare knows that there's a reason in madness. We've seen it in Hamlet. We've seen it in Ophelia in a poignant way, just a a, a, um, a very, very sad way. Um, the clowns are usually f fools, which means they have a wisdom that people generally don't understand. The clown's preparing the grave, and on Act 5, Scene 1, about line 120, Hamlet says to the clown, What man dost thou dig for? For no man, sir. What woman then? Already we're getting the wisdom, I mean the, the humor, and the, the wisdom in humor, the wisdom in, in madness. For none neither, who is buried in it? Hamlet has to finally get serious and say, it's like when saying something, people keep giving you stupid answer, and then you have to come right out and say, give me this you know, straight answer here. One that was a woman, sir, but rest her soul, she's dead. How absolute the knave is. We must speak by the card, that is, we must be literal. By the Lord, Horatio, this three years I have taken note of it. The age is grown so pickled, so picked, that the toe of the peasant comes so near the heel of the courtier, he galls his guy. How long has I been a gravedigger? That is one of the changes taking place is that peasants are rising and kings falling, and they're becoming so close that there's a loss of respect, a dignity, and a language has been lost. All of the days of the year I came to it that day our last king Hamlet overcame Fortinbras. Now remember, in a sense, the story began when Hort, when um, Old Hamlet defeated Fortinbras and took the properties. Because when the play begins, Claudius has to deal with the young Fortinbras because he wants them back. All of that happened before the play began, but that's where the story actually starts with us. And interestingly here, um, what's happening now marks that day. I came to that day, 
that the last king, Hamlet, overcame Fortinbras. That's Shakespeare's way of signaling dates, asking us to hold on to them. How long is that since? Can you not tell that? Every fool can tell that. It's calling Hamlet a fool. Was the very day that young Hamlet was born. So on the day that old Hamlet conquered Fortinbras, Hamlet was born. He came into his life then. He that is mad and sent into England. I marry. Why was he sent into England? Why? Because he was mad. Shall recover his wits there, or if it do not, tis no great matter there. <laughs> because all Englishmen are mad. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> got to You gotta love Shakespeare. God. He didn't put anybody above God, but he but he had a wonderful capacity for doing justice to everybody in the world. Um why twill not be seen in him there? There the men are, are as mad as he is. How came he mad? Very strangely, they say, how strangely fate, even with losing his wits. Upon what ground? Why here in Denmark? I have seen I have been Saxon here, man and boy thirty years. How long will a man lie in the earth ere he run? Faith, if he be not rotten before die, as we have many pocky courses nowadays that will scarce hold the laying in, he will last you some eight a year or nine years. A tanner will last you nine years. Why is he more than another? Why, sir, his hide is so tanned with his trade, who will keep out water a great while, and your water is a sore decayer of your horse on dead body. Here is skull now that lion lean you in the earth three and twenty years. So most bodies take eight years to rot, but tanners longer because they've got tougher skin. Um, Hamlet says, go down, let me see, he takes the skull. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio, a fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent times, and now how bored is my imagination it is. My gorge rises at it. Here hung those lips that I have kissed, I know not how oft. So the grave digger is um, looking, or at the skull that Hamlet looks at is the skull of Yorick, who was the jester, jester in Hamlet's court. But now he's holding his skull. So this is the man he knew as a boy, and who used to sit him on his shoulders and play with him. Now how abhorred in my imagination it is, my gorge rises at it. Here hung those lips that I have kissed, I know not how oft. Where be your jibes now, your gambles, your songs, your flashes of merriment, that were wont to set the table on a roar? Not one now mock your own grinning, quite chapfallen. Now get you to my lady's chamber, lady's chamber and tell her, let her paint an itch think, but on all your makeup. To this favor she must come, all of us will come to this. Make her laugh at that, pretty Horatio. Tell me one thing, what's that, my lord? Dost thou think Alexander looked at this fashion of the earth even so, and smelt so, puts it down. Um, he goes on talking about Alexander and Caesar and how all of them have to come to this same end. The thing that I want to ask here is, Shakespeare could have had this graveyard scene and had anybody. He could have brought the king and queen together as he does Laertes. I mean, he, he could have done this in lots of different ways. But in this particular scene, he brings Hamlet together. Laertes is going to come in a moment. But he has this short interlude with this clown. Um, and in, during this interlude, he picks up this skull that was Yorick's, who was the court jester, 
and sees an image of a person he loved a lot when he was a kid. Why does Shakespeare, why does Shakespeare do that? Here's a skull now hath lean you in the earth three and twenty years. Whose was it? A horse son mad fellow. Who do you think was Yorick's? Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him. He hath borne me on and back a thousand times. Where's all your laughter now? Where's this? What's why does why does Shakespeare do this? Why does he bring in this scene that deals so directly with death? in this way, in this way. You could say it's preparing us. I mean, it's a bit of fast foreshadowing. Yeah. What's the spirit of this scene? It's melancholy. Melancholy. Anybody else? What other words? Lori, did you have something? I well, I was in my mind thinking that um, he's just showing, presenting when he th that we're all going to go there, and that he was being touched by this gesture. You know, his whole life just kind of flashed from his childhood to now, and how. He will be that way too, or his. I, I guess. I guess. I was just thinking how it, he was touched by that, reflecting on a whole life, and that even with his life, that we're all gonna. Someone will hold our lives in their hands one day that way too. I don't know if that makes any sense. But. It does. Yeah, it does. Can anybody imagine holding the skull of somebody you've loved in your hands? No. Graveyards take that away. Just imagine it. I mean, it, it, one of the words that I would have used to describe it is grotesque. It's a kind of, I, we haven't used this, or I think I mentioned when I was talking about a work that we were studying and we were reading in Francis. Flanner O'Connor, she's a famous American short story writer, novelist. She wrote the story Violent Bared Away. The mode of her writing is what's called grotesque comedy. It's a it's a mode. It's it's a and this to me is a it's a form of grotesque comedy. It's tender and it is uh, melancholy, but there's a grotesque comic aspect to it. It's it's you can't miss the grotesque. Your Hamlet's holding the skull of somebody he loved. I, I can't imagine any any of us doing that very comfortably. But anybody else, Mike? Did you have something? I I thought maybe not. I, I thought a minute. Ago. <clears throat> no, I agree with everything that's been said. It was uh, it was a moment to explore the philosophy of of well the, the transitory nature of our human uh, life and um, yeah it's yep that's all I grasped. And did you have? Do you have something? Well, I love this graveyard scene because to me it it, it so follows along with Boethius uh, about all the transitory things that people 
and especially as it goes on a little further from here, but all the transitory things, the powers and all of the position and all this that we hold so important in the end, it doesn't matter at all. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Because it, I'm so glad you put it that way too, Anne, because at the end, I don't want to get there tonight. I want to hold this off so we can mm -hmm. do chapter or Act Five together all at once, because so much is going so much is going on there. But but Hamlet will say at one point when he's reflecting on the sea crossing and what happened there. I don't I don't want to get into it, but at one point he'll say, um, "If it's to come, it will come. If it won't come, it won't. What matters is the readiness is all. What you do at the moment now." And I, it seems to me he has a kind of acceptance of death then that he certainly didn't have in the beginning when he set out on his quest. Um, a lot a lot happens, and one of them, I think, is the graveyard scene and the way you guys are describing it. And I think I'm so glad, Anne, that you made that connection with Boethius. One of the ways of putting this is that death has been... Went, death, I mean, if you think about this, Yorick, this is Yorick's skull. Death has been with Hamlet all along since his birth. In fact, it's marked by his birth. Do you think yeah. that's why he says that how bored it is in his imagination and his gorge rises at it? He, what line, what swear are you? What uh, after what line 190, he just muses about um, how he was born on his back a thousand times and now how oh, yeah, bored right, right. in my imagination. Yeah. Is it he's discussing with himself for not seeing then? No, how bored in my imagination. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's it's just sort of amazing. I think I've used this word when we've been talking about death in whatever context, I can't remember, but the church's position is to always remind us memento mori. That's a, that's, that's a stance of the church. We're not to forget death. Memento mori, remember, death. memento dori, remember, remember, death. remember death, memento mori. Um, it's, I'll, I'll look up some of the some of the medieval, uh, some of the lyrics that we read, the the one about the deer and the night dying and the deer, you just, I'll read some of those next week when we do the lyric. But one of the fundamental positions of the church to the world that is so contrary to the world's way, the world wants to do everything it can to keep death away. It hides graveyards, it puts graveyards outside the city. You can't mention, if you look at all the advertisements, all the advertisements, all of them skirt death. The, the world wants to do everything it can to, to make money and to make it seem as if having our pleasures now is the most important thing in the world. The last thing they want to do is bring up death. The church's position, memento mori, remember death. Do not forget it. So one of the things that I think Shakespeare is underscoring in this is that the death has been with Hamlet right from the beginning, even if he never saw it. But at this point, he's come to see it in a number of ways, and that'll become clear when we when we meet next week and look at the. There's this exchange between him and Horatio about what happened on the Channel Crossing, which I think is so important for this whole this whole struggle with faith, the the role of faith in what takes place here. But but Hamlet's well, I'll ask you is is Hamlet the same person then? That he was in the beginning. Has Hamlet changed before he sure. goes into that? Don't answer it. Has <laughs> Hamlet changed? Has Hamlet changed when he goes into the fencing match? If you've read it, you know that he goes into a fencing match with Laertes, and it's during that 
seeing that the whole play will come to an end. Is he changed? If he has changed, how has he changed? How is he different? And how, how, how was, how does, how to put this? How does the play resolve this problem that opened the play? That a private, a private revelation sets in motion all of these horrible disorders. Um, it isolates everybody. It affects everybody. How does the play resolve that? How does it end? What, what Shakespeare's wisdom on the role of a private revelation, a matter of faith for somebody who's a Christian, if I can put it that way. Are those questions clear? You guys mm -hmm. follow? Is Hamlet the same man? If he's not, how's he changed exactly? I want to be really clear. What kind of, who is he at the end? Opening words. Who's there? Who is Hamlet at the end of this play? Has he changed? If so, how? And how does the play res resolve? Is, is the problem that the play introduced of a private revelation on this matter of justice and mercy, this Christian struggle, is that problem resolved at the end? What's Shakespeare's answer to it? I don't want to answer any of that now. That's your homework. Mm. We start next week with a quiz. Okay. Um, listen, everybody, I'm serious on this note. Um, COVID's all around us. It's just um, hitting home everywhere. So, um, Connie, I know you were worried about it. Um, I'm asking this as a friend. All of you be careful. Um, my daughter's been all over me, so you can join her. Um, but all of you take care, okay? This, it, it, it's just here. So all of you be safe. Um, keep us in your prayers. We will keep you in our prayers, okay? You guys have a good week. See you, see you next week. Bye-bye.